first five verses of this prophecy of Malachi to uh, the church in the Old Testament. I would begin by asking you this question. If there was a complacent church that you knew of, hopefully we're not that, but if we were complacent or we go through bouts of complacency, what is the remedy for that according to God's word? In other words, what focus should we have to jar us out of our complacency or our, or our lukewarmness? Even more personally, if you are lukewarm today, that is, you're complacent in your walk with the Lord Jesus, what focus should you have in God's word? We assume that the message or the answer comes from God's word, right? Where will we go? What message will we key on? And, you know, if you look in popular writing, there are all sorts of ideas, and some of them are not based on God's word, so I wouldn't suggest going there, obviously. Uh, but there are other places that are based on precepts or maybe some connections to God's word, you know, purpose-driven this or highly effective habits of this or a prayer of a certain person uh, that we should follow. And they're kind of given as a, a formula for jarring us out of our lukewarm Christianity. Now, I'm not saying there's nothing of merit there, but the message that Malachi, the prophet, gives and, and many of the scriptural writers when speaking to a complacent people is very clear. These first five verses really shout forth what the starting point is for us to be jarred out of our personal complacency or our corporate complacency. So this is a message to me, Tony, as an individual, to you as an individual believer, to our church, and I would even say the church of Jesus Christ uh, in this country and in the world. Hear now God's word from the prophet Malachi, speaking, remember, to a complacent people. Verses 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to, to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau's Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let us pray. Father, we confess that we go through bouts of a lukewarm Christianity, a lukewarm walk uh, where we've lost the fire. We've maybe even lost that first love, as the book of Revelation speaks, for our Lord Jesus Lord, jar us out of that, personally and corporately, that we might be used for your glory. Well, Lord, guide us by your word when we confront uh, the words of Malachi to the church of old. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would hear these words and be changed as a result of what we hear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, if uh, there was a complacent church you wish to exhort, what would you use in a, as an exhortation? Did you see it in those first five verses? Do you see where Malachi started his first statement? He begins his exhortation, his call to revival, if you will, to renewal with the love of God. That's where we must begin for personal revival. Now, before you start dozing off, when I use the word love, and that's what it makes me do today, the way it's used, love. It doesn't mean anything today. In fact, there's a, a funny little letter that I read that describes what most people think, in, uh, about, think about when they think of love. It says, Dearest Jimmy, no words could ever express the great unhappiness I felt since breaking our engagement. Please say you'll take me back. No one could ever take your place in my heart. I love you, I love you, I love you. 
So please forgive me. I love you, I love you, I love you. Yours forever, Marie. P.S. And congratulations on winning the state lottery. <laughs> what does love mean for us today? You know, to be loved in today's world is because of something we've done. You know, there's something that makes me beloved. I mean, even in your, in your relationship with your spouse, there's a degree to which when you first met, there's something you did, uh, mutually did uh, for each other uh, that caused that person to be attracted to you and, quote, unquote, love you. And uh, that's just part of the human relationships we are, are, are partakers in. That's human love. And, of course, you know the problem with that is that we are fleeting, we're flighty, we change, and so our commitments change. And we may commit to love someone or say we feel love for someone, but feelings change or we fail to keep our commitment. In fact, when I talk about the love of God this morning, I understand that there's someone here most likely who has been done wrong in this department. They've been told that they've been loved and they have been backstabbed or they have been uh, betrayed. And so I know when you, th when you hear the word love, you may shut off something in your mind to say, I, I don't believe there is love. I, I don't want to even hear about love, uh, the love of God especially, because I haven't experienced it. Now, I understand that there are human uh, shaping influences that happen to us that make us shut off when we hear the love of God as the starting point for revival. What I would ask you to do, please, is to put that out of your mind because that's human love. And if you've never experienced the love of God like we're speaking of this morning, please hear with new ears. I can only entreat you in the Holy Spirit. I know that the Spirit is who gives eyes. And maybe you're a believer and you understand theologically or doctrinally some of the truths surrounding the love of God and the complexity of that term. But put on new eyes to see the love of God for you. Because that's what Malachi says to a complacent people, to a lukewarm people, to a people who have been restored to a land and are thankless a people that now have a temple and a wall to protect them. And though their life wasn't like it was in the days of David, they had received so much more than so many of the nations around them, yet they remained thankless. And they even had the nerve to say to God, you don't really love us. You haven't really done anything for us. Let's guard our hearts immediately from that and start thinking in terms of the love of God as the scripture defines love. Now, having removed the worldly notions of love, Love, correctly understood, and we're talking about the love of God, has complexities to it. Yes, there's a simplicity to saying, Jesus loves me, this I know. That, that embodies the essence of the gospel message. I'm not saying it doesn't. It definitely does. My hope is in the Lord, as the hymn says. But there is a complexity that will serve to foster your Christian growth as you understand how complex and how deep and how wide and how tall the love of God in Christ for you is. It's not just a feeling. It's a commitment. It's not one you made. It's a commitment that God makes, and it's multidimensional. You'll never understand the love of God if you don't start delving in to all the depths of that term, of that concept. D.A. Carson speaks about this and says something very intriguing as he starts to unpack what it means to talk about the love of God. He realizes that there is a wall when we speak of the love of God to people today because of our misconception of love, our misunderstanding of love. And he says this, which is a true challenge to digging deeper into this term. He says, I do not think that what the Bible says about the love of God can long survive at the forefront of our thinking if it is abstracted from the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the providence of God, and the personhood of God. You see what he's saying? There's a lot of dimensions if you really want to understand what it means that God loves us as his people. He goes on. The result, of course is that the love of God in our culture has been purged of anything that the culture finds uncomfortable. The love of God has been sanitized, democratized, and above all, sentimentalized. And he's right on. And we have to go back to God's definition of love 
and allow our feelings to flow from the definition rather than our feelings determine the definition. And this is counterculture. We're going against everything that's thrown at us. But it is important if we'll ever be rekindled, if we'll be renewed, if the church in America, Jesus' church in America, will have a transformational effect, it's got to start with the love of God correctly understood. Step one in reviving a lukewarm church is a renewed focus on God's, and I'm going to call it this from now on, covenant love. Covenant love. Step one in reviving a lukewarm personal life, walk with Christ, is based on a renewed focus on God's covenant love for you personally. Now, let's look at the text for a moment and then derive how we should then live as a result. Starting at verse 1 in the first part of verse 2, we have God's love called into question. I've alluded to it last week and again this week, but it serves to mention once more. It begins with the oracle or the burden of the word of the Lord, literally the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The statement, I have loved you, and the Hebrew here is I love you. It's a statement that is true there in that moment of time and extends backwards. I have loved you as as a, a mode of relationship. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved me? How have you loved us, the people say. This dialogue form is common in prophetic literature. Haggai, uh, Malachi, here has it, Zechariah, Isaiah, Micah. And it's this hypothetical dialogue between God and his people. And what they're saying to him is that you may tell us, God, that you love us, but, you know, there's not a lot of proof for that, God. In fact, our outward circumstances stink right now. So don't tell me you love us. And that's what they're saying in their hearts. They wouldn't say it out loud. They know better. They have the Old Testament. They have the, they have, uh, the Torah in front of them. They know what it is to defame God's name. But they're saying in their hearts, and God's revealing, you say you loved us, or you love us, but what have you done for us lately? I, I don't believe that because we're not prospering. Our enemies are doing better than we are. We're back to this land with this horrible facsimile of the original temple in front of us, uh, You don't really love us, is what they're saying. In effect, what Jeremiah says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, a verse you're aware of. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The words of the prophet Jeremiah, the people in Malachi's day, the church in Malachi's day are are corporately saying, there is no such thing as your steadfast love. And it does cease, O Lord. Your mercies have come to an end. They're not new every morning, and your faithfulness is not that great. Now, We say that is startling. I cannot believe that they would say that about their covenant-keeping God. Look at their redemptive history right in front of them. I mean, just the fact that they were there after all they've been through in captivity is an amazing testimony to his grace and his love, his commitment to them. Yet they're saying, how have you loved us, God? how, How can you say you love us? Now, before we move on to see, God states the problem that his love has been called into question. I would submit to you that's the root of their lukewarm faith. That's the root of their complacency. It's why they're going through the motions spiritually, because they have been disconnected from the love of God, the covenant love of God for them. But before we go further and before we become too proud, think for a moment, what are we really confessing with our mouth when we complain about a situation we have in life? Uh, Are we saying, uh, Lord, you don't really love us. Say someone you love gets sick or you lose your job, or the job you have is really difficult, or a relationship, relationship you have is, is broken, or there's something wrong with it, and you say, God, you don't really love me. Now, I know we're too theologically astute probably to say it in those words, but when we have those pity parties, there is an aspect to our saying to God that you really don't love us. You haven't met my needs in these ways, and in the ways I define that you need to meet my needs. My relationship should look like this, and if you don't make them this way, you clearly cannot 
love me. Of course, we see what the problem is. We start with a human perspective that love uh, shows itself by doing what we want. You don't love me. You know, just like a little child says, you don't love me. And what do they mean? That means you didn't let them do something they wanted to do. In a much more sophisticated way, it's the same thing that happens with us. We're guilty of the same thing often. We question God's love for us, and that begins us on the road of spiritual complacency into something much worse. But it starts us down the road. We, we, we doubt the mercies of God. Does this happen in your life? It's a challenge for us to think of. But let's continue, because he's now just stated the issue that has occurred in the church in the Old Testament at this time. They've begun to call the love of God into question, his covenant love. Look at verse 2, the second part of verse 2. God's love here is demonstrated in the most unusual way, not a way that I would probably pick to demonstrate it, but he demonstrates it by judgment. Uh, Starting at verse 1 or verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Then look what he uses as a demonstration of his love. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Now notice God does not beg them to believe Believe him. No, please, please, believe me. I love you. That's not what he does. He gives a concrete, tangible description of what his love looks like, what covenant love is. And he says Esau and Jacob as the demonstration. Now, they know immediately what that means, brothers and sisters. This is their heritage. You have Abraham and Isaac, and Isaac has Esau and Jacob. They're brothers, twin brothers, born conceived at the same time, uh, knit together in their mother's womb at the same time. And so the Israelite knows that they come from Jacob. Now, how can they really say they come from Jacob uh, when Esau is related, right? This would be an uncle, so to speak, of the children of Jacob. So they know right away what, what the Lord through Malachi is getting at. Remember Esau and Jacob because that is a picture of God's love for them. But he doesn't accent the part about choosing Jacob necessarily, but rather accents the fact of what happens to the person who is left in their state. Now, let me accent that, left in their state. Both of these boys were conceived in iniquity. Neither of them had anything to commend to themselves. And God chooses to transmit the covenant promises through Jacob. Now, you know and I know it's not because Jacob was some, uh, you know, clean living guy. It's because God, in his mercy, according to the good pleasure of his own will, put his covenantal love on Jacob and passed over Esau. And Esau went on to his just desert as the father of Edom. Look what happens. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Two brothers conceived in iniquity, destined for judgment. God chooses to set his affection on one of these brothers. And then by looking at what happens to the descendants of the other brother, they can be reminded of God's particular special love for them. Now, I know that may bother some of us. How can God say he hates anybody? Now, first of all, understand, hate for God is not like it is for you and I. When I say I hate, it's sinful anger I might demonstrate towards someone. There are very rare occasions where I think a person should use the word hate uh, because we have too much of our sin mixed into that. Now, we should hate sin. We should hate uh, the fact of sin and hate our own sin. So those words are, you can use it in that term, but be very careful about ever saying, I hate a person or hate any or something because it's too much of our sin wrapped up into that comment. We can't make it like God can, but he can because he's perfect and he doesn't sin. And that's a disregard is what hate means when God says it. He disregards those who he does not place his covenant love upon. I know, again, that evokes a lot of questions. People ask, wow, how can that be? And that question has come up throughout church history. Charles Spurgeon, who had some of the best quick answers to these pastoral questions, and it is a pastoral question. It's one that comes often. He recounts something that helped me immensely in my own dealing with this question as it arises. One said the other day, Spurgeon writes, I hate that text, which says, Jacob I loved and Esau I have hated. Why? 
Spurgeon said. What is the difficulty to your mind? The reply was, I cannot see why God should hate Esau. Nay, said Spurgeon. I'm not at all surprised that God hated Esau. But I'm greatly amazed that God loved Jacob. That, my brothers and sisters, is the answer to that. I can't explain the secret will of God, but I could tell you it is amazing that he would love any of us. And this is what he reminds the people of Israel of. By showing them the judgment that happens to Edom, look what happens to Edom in this prophecy. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered but will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Have you heard of an Edomite lately? Anyone know an Edomite? No, they're gone. A hundred years before this, they received their first attack by the Chaldeans. They were, a, they were an oppressed people when Israel started to move back to the land. But Edom started to restore. They started to regroup. Israel had heard reports of Edom's resurgence going on while they were in the, new, in the land once again with the new temple, the new walls. And certainly someone in Israel was saying, wait a minute, we're the people of God. Why are they re- regrouping? Why are those wicked people who had lived lives of wickedness It's not as though uh, they were punished for no reason. Uh, Their sin prevailed. They were known for it. Why are they prospering? And so Malachi is saying, they may say they'll rebuild. They may talk like it. It may look like it to you. But you can count on their judgment coming. Now let me just say, as an excursus, evil might look like it's prevailing at moments. There may be a time where we say to ourselves, why is it that God lets thus and so prosper or this or that thing do well? But don't be fooled. Because their time will come and destruction will come on those who oppose God. This is not an optional thing. There's always the opportunity for repentance and coming to God's covenant of grace. But understand that no one can say that we are going to rise above like they did in the day of Babel, above God's will in this, and prevail upon God's people. This is the love of God, the commitment of God that is revealed to Israel in this day. And shortly after Malachi's day, within a hundred years, The Maccabean revolt began, the Maccabean era of history began, into the Greek era, and Edom was wiped out. The prophecy was indeed fulfilled. Remember that God's covenant love in this light was not based on their goodness. In fact, by starting with Esau and starting with Jacob, you know right off the bat, equally, equally guilty, just like all of us, brothers and sisters. It's based on God's commitment that is revealed in Deuteronomy 7, where he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than the other people or that you were greater than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest or the least of all the people. But it is because the Lord loves you Covenantly loves, covenantally loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh the king of Egypt. Those words were spoken to post-Exodus Israel and the Israel this day needed to hear it again and the church of our day needs to hear it also. It's his covenant love. It's sure. It's not like human love. It's nothing like human love. It's based on a commitment he made to our spiritual forefathers that is the manifestation of an eternal commitment made long before we were ever thought of. That is deep 
rooted love. So when I say God loves you, please hear what love means. It does not mean he has affection for you now and he won't tomorrow. It means he has determined to place his sovereign, elective, redemptive love upon you. This is the beginning point of our jarring free of complacent spiritual lives. And look at verse 5 as it begins to prophetically look to a future. Yes, immediate, but also, I think, future. One that we still long for. God's love being acknowledged by his people and the world. Look at verse 5 of Malachi 1, verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And immediately their own eyes were able to see Edom be destroyed. But in a greater, more prophetic sense, one that I think we still are awaiting, there will be a day, and it comes through in many of the prophetic writings, there will be a day when God's people all faithfully are acknowledging the Lord. And I would submit to you, too, that all peoples of the nations will submit to the will of the Lord. They can do so willingly as they're called by the church to Christ, or they will be made to do so. But don't be fooled. They all will bow. They all will bow to the Lord, and they will all say that his greatness is far extends the borders of one given nation or one group of people. It will envelop the globe. This is his plan. And Malachi, even here, is looking ahead to that glorious future that will someday come. And led by King Jesus, of course. So what is God's covenant love in a nutshell? And a way to wrap up what's co- what happens in these five verses and elsewhere in Scripture. Now, when I mentioned when I was, that I was having trouble with the name of a sermon to Pastor Nathan, he's the king of acronyms. I'm not any good at those. And I said, well, this, I, I always struggle with a, a title because, you know, you're preaching through the Bible. How do you make a title for this particular passage without making some interpretive comment before you actually exposit it. And so since I pick it on Wednesday and I'm not done studying until Friday, uh, well, what am I going to put for a title? I told him right now I think I'd probably title it that God's love is sovereign, unconditional, uh, redemptive, and elective. How's that for a title? That's eh, probably not going to go too well. Probably, that would that, be a tough one to even fit on the CD, let alone in the bulletin. What about God's love is sure? That's it, brothers and sisters. God's love is sure, really sure. S for sovereign, U for unconditional, and R for redemptive, and E for elective. You can actually get close to capturing all the complexities of God's love by saying God's love is sure and thinking in terms of that acronym. First, his love is sovereign. Think about that for a moment. It's demonstrated in this text. God is under no obligation. He's sovereign and independent, independently chooses us, chooses to save a people for himself. So his love for us is not something you you leveraged him with. He, there's nothing you did that made him say, boy, uh, Tony, you're, you're just, man, you're the kind of guy that I want in my team, and I'm going to, nothing like that. Sovereignly, independently, no outside influence, he places his love upon us. That's the first aspect of God's sure love for us, his covenant love. Secondly, we could say it's unconditional. It goes closely with his being independently motivated, but also unconditional in this. It I mean, really unconditional, truthfully unconditional. It is not based on what you do, thankfully. Because there's no way, we always talk about the scale that at the end of my life, I, when I talk to people, I, I just think that there will be more good things that, that I've done that way outweigh the, the bad. And that's how God's going to accept me. And honestly, think about that for a moment. The best person you know, honestly, there's no one that could truthfully say in the quietness of their heart that that would even be close to possible, that your good works would outweigh your bad. I mean, we are so worse, so, so far worse than what we think we are. I mean, there's no way to even weigh it. I mean, there's no scale that could put all of our sins on it. Or the, the, the pittance of our good works that are called filthy rags outside of the blood of Christ. So in that sense, it is unconditional. Jacob and Esau were brothers, twins no less, hard to be more equal than they were. 
Yet God placed his love upon one, and it was for nothing that they did. They were not attractive. There's no reason other than God's sovereign good pleasure. So God's love is sovereign, unconditional. And let's not forget it's redemptive, brothers and sisters. That means it costs something. He couldn't just, in his own justice, in his own character, just ignore our sin. All that sin I just mentioned, he can't just look over it. That's not God anymore. He can't stand in the presence of that sin. So there has to be a substitute for the payment or the punishment that we deserve for that sin. And there has to be one who's righteous enough to offer that sacrifice. And there has to be one willing to give him up. And that's God giving up his son for us to be our sin on that cross and then to be our righteousness as he transfers our righteousness to us and our sin to himself. He takes it on the cross. It's redemptive. One of the most uh, beautiful periods of church history is the time of the Reformation when the Roman church was starting to have a lot of inner turmoil as monks and priests were starting to come to an understanding of this doctrine of grace that had been in their history but had been so shrouded by rituals and forms. And there was a certain medieval monk who announced that he'd be preaching on the love of God. And there started to be this resurgence of emphasis on the love of God, which, again, I would submit to you is the beginning of revival. And so he's talking about the love of God, the covenantal love of God. And the church has still had all sorts of icons and idols and so forth. And there was, of course, a huge crucifix in this church. And the sum total of the service was he lit up a candle, much like what we have here but on a higher stick, and he held that candle up to the crucifix. And he first turned all the lights off in the place, and there's a candle lit and shut the windows in the evening and held the light up towards the crown of thorns that were on the crucifix and then moved down so you could only see the crown of thorns. And then he would move down to each hand where the nails entered the hands and showed each hand in the, without saying a word in the darkness, just shed a little light on it, then went down to the feet of our of the picture of our Lord and showed the nail driven through those feet and then went up to the side where the the side had been pierced and showed that light. Now, whatever you think of that method, understand the church in that day, okay? I wouldn't do that today. But it was vivid as the light went out and people were dismissed. That's redemptive love, what was done for us on the cross. It cost God something. It cost the Trinity something in their own fellowship. You know, for all the talk about the movie that's come out, One thing it can never capture, nor can any picture capture, is the soul anguish of Jesus. As he's separated from his father, you cannot picture it. We can't fathom it. And even the idea of giving one of my sons just breaks me. It shatters me to think of it. But the pain I would feel is a pittance compared to what God the Father felt for his son and what the son felt for his father when for three hours the wrath of God was poured out on the son and they were separated. That's redemptive love. And it's elective. Obviously, as we have seen, he is chosen, he is elected to place his love upon some. I understand that that brings questions to many's hearts. Uh, many, of our, many of our hearts have gone through it. In fact, for a long time, I always, I would, not always, but there's to be some degree, probably before you all knew me, I would tiptoe around this a little bit. Because I understood that it would take, uh, probably, at least I thought and I think erroneously, it would take a little more mature believer to understand this doctrine of election. But then it dawned on me that, no, in fact, what I'm doing by not accenting it and saying it bluntly and saying what the Scripture says is that I'm robbing those who are immature from growing into maturity by not accenting what the doctrine of election clearly says, that he has chosen some for salvation, not all, and salvation is totally of him. I believe that's the starting point for revival in your own heart. I can't help you get over that hump if you're still there. I can only ask you to think in terms of what we need to be brought to in order for us to fully grasp the height, the depth, the width, the length of the love of God. We have to be brought to at the end of ourselves. And this doctrine, this teaching, 
definitely serves that purpose. Jonathan Edwards in his day, or excuse me, before Jonathan Edwards, long before Jonathan Edwards, Augustine in his day, we're talking the fourth century now. This, this, this question obviously came up in, for all uh, that this period of uh, church history yields us. This quote is beautiful from Augustine. He says, For as much as some people imagine that they must look on God as a respecter of persons if they believe without any respect had to the previous merits of men, he hath mercy on whom he will and calls whom it is his pleasure to call and makes good whom he pleases. The scrupulousness of such people arises from not only their duly attending to this one thing, namely the damnation that is rendered to the wicked as a matter of debt, justice, and desert, whereas the grace given to those who are delivered is free and unmerited, so that the condemned sinner cannot allege that he is unworthy of his punishment, nor the saint vaunt or boast as if he was worthy of his reward. It's essential as a starting point and understand the love of God, the covenant love of God, that we grasp his elective love. Romans 9, you are aware probably, quotes this verse from Malachi. In Romans 9, verse 13, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. But Paul goes on further to talk about this idea of God choosing for himself. In verse 15, he says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's because he's God. So then it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God. Who has mercy? For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God's love is sovereign, it's unconditional, it's redemptive, and it's elective. That's what I mean when I say God loves you, brothers and sisters, and he loves you. Jonathan Edwards much later in church history. And I I quote these for you, just so you understand, this has been an ongoing discussion that has been used by God over and over again to facilitate revival. No different in Jonathan Edwards' day. And listen to what Edwards says. The sovereignty of God is the stumbling block on which thousands fall and perish. If we go contending with God about his sovereignty, it will be our eternal ruin, Edwards says. It is absolutely necessary that we should submit to God as an absolute sovereign and the sovereign of our souls, as one who may have mercy on whom he will and have, and have mercy and harden whom he will. He said this in the 1700s. So finally, why is it that God's covenant love is an important message for us today as individuals and as a church? To summarize, I'd say very simply, God's covenant love is the proper motivation for obedience. It's the very thing that will drive you into victory in your Christian life. I could just say pastorally, I can compare the person in my mind who is driven by guilt, who is driven by this idea that they'll make themselves cleaner for God, that they'll somehow do something that will commend themselves to God. Those people live in defeat. The, victory is, the victories are few and far between. Sin gets more and more of a hold when you think you've got something to offer to God. That's where this practically makes a difference. But on the other hand, when you already are at rock bottom, you know there's nothing you can do to commend yourself to God. Everything you do becomes an act of worship. It becomes an act of God working in you because you know you can't do it. And so your boasting is not in your good works, but in the good works that God does through you. There's a huge difference between someone who lives a victorious Christian life and one who's defeated. And I think the difference comes with understanding what God's covenant love really means. Grace is the essence of theology, and gratitude is the essence of ethics. 
The Dutch theologian Burkhauer says, and he is right, it will humble us, it will take away our presumption, it will remove every ground of boasting that we have. It will cut the nerve of pride. It will put to naught the cavalier sense that we have before our God so often in our day where we daily around his presence like he's our buddy. This is God we're talking about, and he loves us. It will make us tremble with tears of joy that we could belong to God. There's a final reason for Malachi's entreaty in verse 5, and it's the one that I would hope we would look widely towards, that people would glorify God beyond these borders, that we would see this community glorify God, that we would see this city, this state, this country, this world say what it says in verse 5. We'll see with our own eyes. It will say, great is the Lord beyond this building, beyond the other buildings that preach Christ in this city, beyond the churches that now exist in our country that are faithful, and there are many of them. But beyond that, we see people speak of the glory of God. I close with words of J.I. Packer, speaking in a book that is a classic. It's one of the, the human books that you must read often because you have an opportunity. And we'll be teaching it next quarter in Sunday school, Knowing God. Listen to Packer's words, and I'll close with them. It is staggering that God should love sinners, yet it is true. He's speaking of love in the terms we are speaking. God's lo- God loves creatures that have become unlovely, and one would have thought unlovable. That's me. There was nothing whatever in the objects of his love to call it forth. Nothing in us could attract or prompt it. Love among persons is awakened by something in the beloved. But the love of God is free, spontaneous, unevoked, uncaused. God's love, God loves people because he has chosen to love them. And no reason for his love can be given except his own sovereign good pleasure. Step one. For the lukewarm church, for the lukewarm believer, to be shaken out of their complacency is not a formula. It's a refocus on what the love of God is for us. Malachi is going to say a lot about ethics in the rest of this book, about things they need to change in their lives. But he knows that is for naught without the, with the, without the proper anchoring in God's covenant love for them. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your sovereignty, or where we can't understand it, or where it bucks against our pride. I pray that you would break us down, that you would make us to see what is the width, the depth, the height, and the length of the love of you for us in your Son, that we might be humbled and then spurred on to good works, that we might see your name glorified beyond these borders. We pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing number 471. There's just two verses to this hymn. It's a little...